sir. Oh, yeah, I'm looking for a good mystery on something off the beaten track like the Maltese Falcon. Oh, that was a fascinating story. But here's one that has everything the Falcon had and more. It's Raymond Chandler's latest bestseller, The Big Sleep. What a picture that'll make. Mind if I look at it? Hello and welcome to this final episode of Eerie This Series 2. Looking back, it's been an eclectic run of books, occasionally threatening to have some kind of thematic link, but more often than not, lurching from Shakespeare to Huntress Thompson like a librarian in an earthquake. Now with the dust settling, this fitful reading list will be at last rounded with a sleep. A big sleep. For patrons, this is just the beginning of our Raymond Chandler journey together. We're going to be doing a Marlowe a month, and his second adventure, Farewell My Lovely, will be on the Patreon page very shortly. As usual, today I will be joined by my co-host Adam, with whom I've been talking about talking about Chandler for a very long time. I don't know, I think my, my favourite one, I mean I've completely, you asked me about Big Sleep and I'm talking about everything but, but my favourite one's The High Window. Okay. Where... We will do them all, so s- do don't all. blow your load. I won't do them all, it's just like, it starts and ends with the same imagery. Mm. And I think there's a lot of that kind of book ending in Chandler books. Where how it starts is often the way it ends. That was that was the story you should have muted me on because that really went nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> are, we, are we actually going to use this or is this just an? Audio I don't know context? what this is. I think this is this is a sort of unwinding after yet another tech scramble. Yeah. Um, One day when we get ourselves a sort of vacuum sealed hermetic cube yeah. to record this podcast in. Yeah. We will finally be able to say what's been on our minds <laughs> for years. We wanted to talk about this for years. Uh, good segue. We have wanted to talk about this for, I think we can say years. Because yeah. I think from very early on, we wanted to talk about um, Chandler. And we finally are. We've sort of flirted with him with talking about Dashiell Hammett. We've been teasing Chandler for two years. Two years. Two years. Two years we've been teasing her, Chandler. Raymond Chandler was born in 1888 in Chicago. Twelve years later, his family moved to London, and Chandler was enrolled at the prestigious Dulwich College. Later, he would say, It would seem that a classical education might be a rather poor basis for writing novels in a hard-boiled vernacular. I happen to think otherwise. After school, Chandler wrote romantic poetry, returned to the States and took a diverse range of jobs, such as bookkeeping, fruit-picking and tennis racket stringing. He served in the trenches of France with the Canadian Expeditionary Force and was twice hospitalised with Spanish flu during the last century's big pandemic. After being fired from his job as an oil executive, Chandler was in his mid-40s, midway into the Great Depression and without work. Despite the bleakness of the situation, he decided to do what I had always wanted to do, write. But this time, instead of romantic poetry, he needed to find something that would pay the bills. It was after picking up a pulp magazine that Chandler said, It suddenly struck me that I might be able to write this stuff and get paid while I was learning. Pulp magazines, so-called for the cheap wood pulp they were printed on, were then entering the peak of their popularity, sometimes selling up to one million copies per issue. By way of contrast, in 1930 there were less than 500 bookstores in America, selling largely to a wealthy and sophisticated elite. For a book to become a bestseller, an author would have to hope for support from taste informants like the Book of the Month Club, again aimed at a small number of well-off readers who could afford the subscription. 
But it wasn't the case that no one else was reading or that they couldn't read. UNESCO estimated in 1940 that 95% of Americans were literate. It's just that the book publishers were targeting only a wealthy fraction of them. Cheap paperbacks were only just entering circulation, and hardbacks cost more than $30 in today's money. So in 1930, if you weren't well off and wanted something to read, you reached for the pulps. Of these, according to the annotated Big Sleep, Black Mask was widely regarded as the best of the bunch. It was founded in 1920 by drama critic and editor George Nathan, and journalist, culture maven and scholar H.L. Mencken, as a way to fund their Tonya magazine, The Smart Set. Its early subtitle announced Western, Detective and Adventure Stories, but due to popular demand, the crime stories, and specifically the newly invented, hard-boiled detective fiction, took over. Despite his lifelong desire to write, Chandler felt he had to learn how to do it all over again to get published in the pulps. He studied the work of Dashiell Hammett and Earl Stanley Gardner, writing to the latter, I learned to write a novelette on one of yours, about a man named Rex Kane. I simply made an extremely detailed synopsis of your story, and from that rewrote it and compared what I had with yours, and then went back and rewrote it some more, and so on. It looked pretty good. It took him a year to write his first story, Blackmailers Don't Shoot, and another six years would pass before The Big Sleep, Chandler's first novel, was published. Like all of Chandler's books, you never really get an oversight on what the plot is. And when I say the plot, I mean like the conspiracy that the thing's hung on. Mm. All of Philip Marlowe always gets close enough to realize that it's, he's way out of his depth, and then that's the sort of closure you get. Sometimes he maybe saves one person, and that's good enough. One of the reasons for Chandler's apparent loose grip on plot was that he tended to cobble together his novels from previous stories, and would call these cannibalizations. Pulp paper never dreamed of posterity, Chandler once said. The stories published in magazines had short lifespans. Once you read your monthly pulp, you put it aside and forgot about it. Chandler never betted on anyone going back to preserve his old stories and cross-reference them with his novels. The cannibalised stories in the case of The Big Sleep were The Killer in the Rain from 1935 and The Curtain from 1936, as well as a few scenes from an earlier third story, The Fingerman. Combining pre-existing storylines is usually what gets blamed for the plot inconsistencies in Chandler. Famously in The Big Sleep, the chauffeur Owen Taylor is found bludgeoned and driven off a cliff, but it's never quite clear who kills him or if it was a post-bludgeoning suicide dive. But there's nothing wrong with a few structural mysteries in a detective novel, and the process of cannibalising his older stories allowed Chandler to focus on individual scenes and creating atmosphere. The mystery outfit was a means to an end, and he once said he didn't care a button about the detective story as a form. What it allowed him to do, besides make a living, is get away from what Marlowe would call the austere simplicity of fiction and into the tangled woof of fact. In pacey, slender crime novels, it is an economic law that action and characterizations uphold the plot, even considered wasteful, if any don't. In a Chandler novel, the plot is used like compost, sprouting and housing all sorts of life for Marlowe, the shop-soiled Galahad, to shovel his way through. Plot of the, plot of the big sleep, um, Marlowe's employed by... Sternwood. Sternwood. Wealthy Mr. Sternwood in his greenhouse. Yeah, and there's a great description of his hair. Yeah. Like um, the last wild flowers clinging onto a cliff <laughs> yes, or something. Yeah. Windswept cliff, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's such a good piece of atmosphere, mm. is that Marlowe is in his sort of like sticky polyester shirt. Basically a jungle. Yeah. yeah. Above the entrance to the Sternwood place, Marlowe sees depicted in stained glass an armoured knight rescuing a damsel who is tied to a tree and nude, her dignity preserved by her long and convenient hair. The knight is in the act of untying the lady, but isn't making much progress. 
If I lived in the house, I would sooner or later have to climb up there and help him. He didn't seem to be really trying. This second paragraph of the Marlowe novels introduces a long-established theme of critical interpretation. That Marlowe is a modernised kind of knight-errant, a figure from Don Quixote's library from Arthurian romance. One of the names Chandler actually played around with before landing on Marlowe was Mallory, after Thomas Mallory, the author of Le Mort de Arthur. Like a knight of yore, Marlowe roams his own lawless world, living by a personal code of honour. Instead of the ancient country and castles of England and France, this knight trots through Los Angeles, a city so lavishly corrupt and crime-ridden that it prompted journalist George Creel to comment, this isn't a city, this is a conspiracy. As implied by his wanting to help the stained-glass maiden, Marlowe's honourable efforts are often futile. He acknowledges this quite frankly at one moment in the book. I look down at the chessboard. The move with the knight was wrong. I put it back where I had moved it from. Knights had no meaning in this game. It wasn't a game for knights. Well, Sternwood, basically, he suffers from some kind of horrible... Some kind of horrible condition. Hmm. Sounds like you've got it. Yeah. (laughs) I've got got (laughs) the Sternwood. up when you've even mentioned it. But he has to spend all of his the rest of his life in a greenhouse, basically, for the, for, for the air. The general, Sternwood, is in rough shape, spending his time wrapped in blankets in a humid greenhouse, paralysed in both legs, with half a stomach left, and only able to sleep a sleep so close to waking it hardly deserves the name. He's in a kind of purgatory, and using his strength like an out-of-work showgirl uses her last good pair of stockings. The jungly conditions of the greenhouse make a lasting impression, the perfumed stench of the flesh-like orchids lingering throughout the rest of the book. Many have commented that the jungle in the greenhouse prefigures the jungle of Los Angeles, but the incongruity of this microclimate makes another impression, that of rapid assembly. I think, well, what do you think about the setting then of well, Los, I was just Los Angeles? Los Angeles, yeah. I, I, I was really interesting. I was, I was reading about it earlier. And um, so we didn't really talk about San Francisco <clears throat> as much when we talked about Hammett. But Frisco. Frisco had just been hit by a, it was still kind of recovering from the huge earthquake yep. when... Um, Hammett wrote about it, and that's why it's kind of fog-bound and fog-smothered. Yeah. Um, fog Can you say fog-bound? Does that just mean you're going into fog? Fog-bound, I guess, means that you're sort of plagued by fog. Fog-swaddled. Fog-swaddled. Um, <laughs> uh, but the, the Los, I was reading about Los Angeles, and, and between 1910 and 1930... It, like, quadrupled billioned in size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think population tripled or quadrupled. Well, and it was, it was yeah. so springing up so quickly that it was just a... Just a sprawl. Uh, a sprawl, but also rife with corruption. It was kind of run by the Los Angeles... They called something like the Los Ang- Angeles Organization, a really catchy mob yeah. name. But I think they were... Um, the impression I always got was it was the last last frontier town. Yeah. They'd made it all the way west. And that was the last place you could go and sort of stake your claim, yeah. and get a patch of land very cheap. And so I think the last, the last people who got rich in America off land owning, yeah. got rich there in Los Angeles. Oh right, so it was oh, okay. I didn't know that because it was um <clears throat> the it's the plot of Chinatown, mm. the man who brought water to the desert. Oh, of course, when they managed to irrigate Los Angeles and give it water supply, suddenly there was this enormous amount of coastal space. Mm. that was just a paradise for anybody who had money to develop on. So you would have all of these housing projects spring up, which would have been very cheaply made, um, a downtown area that started off quite small and then expanded. It's why Los Angeles today is long and low and flat, Mm. because the border for Los Angeles was never properly set. It just kept spreading. Mm. It was probably one of the first modern sprawl cities because there was just a free-for-all on space. 
Yeah. I think that's still the same in America, but now I don't think there's any land left in America that's unowned. Los Angeles had been put together quickly, as the annotated Big Sleep tells us. In the 1910s, it was the fastest growing city on Earth, hyped and hustled like perhaps no other city had ever been. The population of Los Angeles ballooned fourfold between 1910 and 1930, from approximately 310,000 to about one and a quarter million. California had only been conquered less than a century before Chandler wrote The Big Sleep, and its existence as a former violent frontier town following the Mexican War would still be in living memory. Chandler seems to acknowledge the anxiety that comes with the rapid changes to the landscape, and makes Sternwood epitomise the cost. While he has the trappings of an ancient patriarch, his history doesn't have very deep roots. A portrait in the entrance hall depicts a Sternwood relative in stiff regimentals from around the time of the Mexican War. Sternwood has made his fortune in the oil fields, acquiring the wealth of a grand old family overnight. Now he sits in his greenhouse, living on heat like a baby spider, the living portrait of a modern, faster way of life. Sternwood closes his eyes as Marlowe leaves and is propped up on pillows when we see him again at the end of the novel, having, appropriately, it seems, slept through the whole thing. I forget. Marlowe's ex-police, I mm. think. Or is well, interestingly, in the first, the, the, the first um, paragraph, says, he says something like, I, I was neat, um, <clears throat> clean-shaven and sober. Uh, and I wasn't afraid to show it. <laughs> and I, I probably got that slightly wrong, but the exact phrasing is what you'd say in the army. Yeah. You know, you and the, a few people comment on the fact that he's got a, a oh, kind okay. of military disposition. So there's a strong sense that he's ex-military. Because I think there's the, the, the two tropes in sort of golden age noir is that if, it, if it's set in the 50s or the, or the late 40s, private eyes were mostly war vets who couldn't get work. Mm. So they either went into the police or they set themselves up as private eyes and were just heavies. Yeah. Or you were washed up ex-cop or you were a retired cop who's trying to make some money in an honest way. Mm. <clears throat> or you were never good enough for the police in the first place. And you're just, you know... Too much of a loose cannon. Too much Marlo. of a loose cannon. Mm. What we know about Marlowe's background is that he worked as an investigator for a district attorney's office, but was sacked for insubordination. It's Marlowe's taunting back chat, as opposed to his detective work, that tends to confound his enemies. While drawling one-liners has become a staple of the t detective genre, in Chandler's novels they aren't just imported cool. Marlowe's similes and jibes amount to a running critique on the state of his world. It's another thing that comes from being the lead character in a cobbled-together plot. Marlowe is more than usually alive to the ar artificiality of the characters around him. Not too surprising, he is, after all, in Hollywood. But he has a special gift for noticing and calling out the affectations of others. In the next novel, he admires a character's cool, half-cynical way of talking, not yet hard-boiled. The quality of his own wisecracks is at various times assessed throughout the books. In The Big Sleep, he twigs onto the daughter Carmen's eyelash trickery at once, and even congratulates himself on his own performance. I snicked a match on my thumbnail, and for once, it lit. He lives in a town of practice stares and rehearsed charisma, and it feels at times like there are no real people left in it. Each one you meet can only be judged on the merits of their own artistic success. His daughter's missing. Mm. He wants to go find his daughter. No, no. His daughter's being blackmailed. His daughter's being blackmailed. Yeah. But his daughter's not missing yet. Okay, that comes it's, later. It's, it's one of the but two classic st starts. The, the one is, my daughter's missing or my wife is missing. And the other one is... Um, oh, she's being blackmailed with the, with, the, with, the, with the pictures, isn't she? With nude photos, yeah. yeah. There's two daughters. There's Carmen and then there's... Um, Vivian and it's uh, Carmen who's being yeah. Blackmailed. Carmen's the there young, is also there's Carmen's a, a younger daughter. There is a missing husband 
of the elder sister. Yes, there is one, but he, he went missing before the start of the book. Didn't yeah, he? and uh, that's not Marlowe's um, job. He's assigned to find <laughs> this this blackmailer who's a bookseller, mm-hmm. dodgy yes. bookseller called uh, Gwyn Geiger. Although he is hired to make Carmen's blackmail problem go away, what grabs Marlowe's attention is the disappearance of her brother-in-law, Rusty Reagan. He was married to the older Sternwood sister, Vivian, who shares her name with the Arthurian Lady of the Lake, itself later used as a title of another Marlowe novel. In the medieval stories, Merlin falls in love with Vivian, even though he knows she will be his doom. Sure enough, depending on which version of the story you read, she either buries him alive or seals him in a hawthorn tree to spend eternity in an enchanted slumber. At the end of this big sleep, it is discovered that Rusty has been dead the whole time, killed by Carmen and buried in one of General Sternwood's oil fields. That's a, that's a brilliant bit, the, um, the bit with the bookshop, mm. with where he goes in and fakes being a confused tourist. Yep. He puts his hat on backwards and puts on a pair of sunglasses. Bookshops, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, had a clientele of wealthy elites, unless they were fronts for pornographers like Geiger. When Marlowe is impersonating a foppish book collector, putting my voice high and letting a bird twitter in it, he deprecates the books on view by saying they are probably stuff tuppence-coloured and a penny plain. According to the annotated Big Sleep, this is a phrase of none other than Robert Louis Stevenson's, referring to cheap playbooks, which cost two pennies coloured or one penny for the poor to colour in themselves. It was the equivalent of the penny plain market that would be instrumental to changing Chandler's fortunes. The Big Sleep's first hardback, cloth-bound run sold decently but not spectacularly, around 10,000 copies. It wasn't a bestseller, despite the efforts of Knopf, Chandler's publisher, who took out a full-page ad saying, In 1929, Dashiell Hammett. In 1934, James M. Cain. In 1939, Raymond Chandler. Chandler was disappointed in the critical response too, which ranged from the lacklustre, what more do you want for your two bucks, type to the ruffled outrage of the New York Times. The language used in this book is often vile, at times so filthy that the publishers have been compelled to resort to the dash, a device seldom employed in these unsqueamish days. Four years later, the first paperback edition came out and sold a massive 300,000 copies. Pulp may never have dreamed of posterity, but with a big enough sleep, it had it now. Yeah, so the, um, how, how many times does Marlowe get hit over the head with a kosh in this book? I don't think as, as many times as the next one, Farewell, My Lovely, yeah. when it is... It's like the end of every chapter. Like he, he really has out. some serious head trauma by the end. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's almost like his special move, is get, get knocked out. Kosh and fade to black. <laughs> I came to midway through my next koshing. <laughs> oh, two o'clock's koshing has come early today. Marlowe takes enough koshings for them to start to operate as scene transitions. But Chandler didn't use them lightly, saying, I know what it is to be banged on the head. The first thing you do is vomit. What do you think about noir as a Western? As a Western? Well, I think it's, a, it's, it's so much about setting, mm-hmm. and a, a particularly for, for Chandler, it's a, it's, um, I think he's far more concerned with atmosphere and mood sure. uh, than, than plot. Every generation has its own own western yeah just wondering if noir might have been western for in the middle of the century i mean it's sort of they're always kind of crushed men i think that's the other thing the the (coughs) westerns or my understanding of west obviously westerns changed because westerns are still getting made as films now and probably still written yeah there's 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 flawed heroes and Mm -hmm. there's um you know crushed uh emasculated cowboys and that kind of thing yeah but i think Maybe the hard-boiled 
genre was more like where did these people end up sure when they once because there was the there was the whole thing about the the depression after the mm-hmm. um after the war not not capital d yeah but the the kind of post war um cultural feeling if we can't really hang on to these old colorful um tales they don't really ring true anymore after what's just happened to us yeah and it's obvious why characters like that started to become popular even though written some of them before they started getting the movies after that and so jolly john wayne with nice ruddy cheeks he even the tenor of his films sort of changes i don't think the searchers you would have you would make and then paint your wagon came out uh, yeah, and I mean, obviously, that the kind of nostalgia for all that time persists yeah. as well. But um, maybe Hard Boiled was <coughs> sort of created out of a cynicism at this kind of jolly, kind of uh, frontiersman t- type spirit. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a dickhead and talk about an opera. <laughs> Have you ever <coughs> heard of the rise and fall of the city of Mahagone? No, I haven't. Or Mahogany. It's, um, it's an opera about a, a frontier town mm. that springs up, falls to sin, and then literally the city falls into a hole in the ground. Oh, wow. And it's assumedly hell. Gosh. And that's actually how um, Paint Your Wagon ends. Really? With the, um, well, they, there's a gold rush, and they mine away all the foundations of the city, and it just collapses into the ground. <laughs> but yeah, there's, um, <clears throat> I think Westerns can be man against place, or at least man against corruption. I mm. think that's maybe what this more is, is that, like we were talking about at the beginning, it's... You're one man. You're one one Marlow mm. against the forces of everything that isn't Marlow. I think that's another key that for because obviously they're, they're both massive genres. So you have to kind of define what what for you is the mm-hmm. sort of defining thing. And because I haven't read many westerns, I have to reach for film. The, so the, like yeah. Man with No Name for me is the stereotypical well, that's, that's western well, like figure. Western is man rides into town. Mm. Some stuff happens. Man rides out of town. But. But I think the the difference then is that the man with no name is also the man with no past. And he's not from anywhere. He's sure. just a um, heroic well, Mar- figure. Marlowe's past is never really properly expounded on either. But he's so much from that city. Yeah. Like he he's fighting against corruption, yes. But he's also kind of born from it. Sure. And we've I think we said in the Hammett one, there's there's a lot of the um and there's the same in Chandler. There's a lot of the sense of um there's a very narrow line between me the hero and you the the criminals that i'm trying to yeah, police well, they're all just thugs with guns at the end of the day yeah and some of them are a little bit better than the others whereas w- the tenor of, m- of sort of classic westerns is there are heroic people and then there is evil sure and it's a bit well there's there's some good ones and some bad ones there's some, some good ugly yeah. ones <laughs> goodies and baddies and ugly ones yeah, <laughs> yeah. i think that i've so westerns having a bit of a resurgence right now are they noir at least in this style, went out of fashion and didn't had a bit of a resurgence in the seventies, like you say. Mm. But you don't really get them like this anymore. My suspicion is it's a bit too hyper masculine. You think? And, I, don't, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't think there's anything really hyper masculine about Philip Marlowe. Well, I don't either. But I think when you transfer it to film, that you lose a lot of the yeah. kind of irony. Well, especially when you if you, if you cast somebody him. like Humphrey Bogart. Or even Robert Mitchum. Yeah. The, you can tell from the trailer. I, in fact, the one thing I could tell from the trailer immediately is that very first line. Mm-hmm. I was clean. You know, it's a it's a s- silly hyper masculine line. If it yeah. ends here, I'm I was like clean shaven, um, neat and sober. Full stop. Yeah. Full stop. That's a silly line. Yeah. Whereas if it's um, I was clean 
clean shaven, neat and sober. And I wasn't afraid to show it. That immediately has got... It's funny. Yeah. It's funny and it, it's kind of um, poking fun at itself. I notice in the trailer, Robert Mitchum says it and drops the second part. Yeah. So immediately you can just tell that... They've gone for a different tone. And not, not. And then you do one. end up with basically a Western hero in a yeah. in a, a more modern setting. A lot has been written about the hard-boiled detectives being the sons and grandsons of the frontier gunslingers. The missing link is sometimes said to be Deadwood Dick, a pulp outlaw turned detective. The similarity lies chiefly in their individualism. Like the frontiersmen of the old west, the gumshoes and private eyes operate according to their own private laws. As John Paul Athanasirelis says. As the homophone private eye suggests, the figure of the hard-boiled detective is grounded firmly in the individualist ethos of the United States. But the gunslingers were even more of a law unto themselves. Their stories much more bloodthirsty, partly because their enemies, whether Native American or Mexican, were often depicted as evil aliens. Hard-boiled private eyes don't tend to be all that socially progressive either, prone to racism and particularly to homophobia and misogyny. But their enemies are almost always fellow citizens. The frontiersmen were violent and non-cooperative, whereas Marlowe does as much as possible not to use his gun and tries at every opportunity to preserve human life. That's not to say that he's sentimental about the dirt he mingles with. Did you know that worms are of both sexes and that any worm can love any other worm? This line, which kind of comes out of nowhere, sounds to me like it comes from someone who is destabilised by the sudden boom of diversity around him. Marlowe might not like or understand a lot of his fellow citizens, but he recognises their rights and most importantly sees himself as only another figure in their world. This is what makes him very different from the gunslingers of the old westerns. They had you think they invented the landscape as they discovered it. But by Marlowe's time, America has long been shared out. Marlowe seems to intuit throughout the novel that he is not its main character. The rain still pounded with a remote sound as if it was somebody else's rain. And Chandler himself said, Marlowe is outside the story and above it. I always just end up talking about Chinatown. But in Chinatown, he realises that, oh God, this goes all the way. This goes all the way to the top. Mm. And then he just has to walk away. And I think that's, that is pure Chandler. Mm. Is that there's no, never really a happy ending. There's just a variations on how bad the ending's going to get. Yeah, I think he was quite <clears throat> frustrated with being um, described as a, a mystery writer. And yeah. put in a genre because I think he thought they were a good framework to pin what he was actually interested in, which yeah. is um, writing that depends more on atmosphere and atmosphere mood and, and conspiracy, interesting and characters, veiled threats. Yeah, and, you know. Have you ever walked into a place that you know you immediately shouldn't be, and then mm. walk straight back out again, and you never, and you think about it sometimes? Like I've there's a couple of times when I've like been looking for the toilet in like the back of a pub in another country and I open the door and there's just like a whole load of illegal gambling. Mm. Have and you? Then people turn How many times has this happened? Twice. You've twice <clears throat> you've walked you've been in the back of a foreign pub yeah. and you've walked in on illegal yes. gambling. One time it was a whole load of slot machines. Okay. And the other time it was just a whole load of folding tables and people playing cards. Bunch of Italians around a, a green <laughs> velvet table. I wish. Smoking cigars and wearing those strange visors. Yeah. All all of them were all, they, they they were all dealing. They yeah. were all dealers and dealing cards to each other furiously. <laughs> so what they were just playing snap. <laughs> <laughs> just whipping cards at each other across the table. Did they slowly stop dealing as you walked in? No, they sped up. No. <laughs> Made eye contact. Fuck it, it's it, it's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I think... The, they start smoking their cigars quicker. <laughs> the, the point I was making was that it, that's the theme of a Chandler book, is you get a look at something you shouldn't have seen, mm. and then you just have to leave again because you know you're not welcome there. 
Thank you for listening to Ear Read This. As I said at the top, we will be now covering a Marlow a month uh, over on our Patreon page. Um, if you'd like to, uh, to investigate that, it's uh, patreon.com slash this. Um, it's a bit of a sort of uh, tasting menu Marlowe episode, this one. Uh, I think for the following ones, I'd, I'd like to pick on a single theme and, and follow that throughout uh, each novel because th- almost every separate bit that I brought up could have um, banged on for ages out uh, about so connections to chivalry. Um, the last point about this strange kind of um, double role that Marlowe has as as narrator with a bit of distance, but also the main character. I find that really, really interesting. So, yeah, each novel as we go through will will hopefully feature one of those. Um, and as for the whole the whole series thing, we're not we're not going away. We're again quite arbitrarily deciding to call this the end of series two, and next week um, begin a slightly more chronological approach, which will demarcate with a with a number three. Um, but we're not going on break or anything like that. Um, so until then, as usual, I'll wish you happy reading. Thank you.